are listening to the Collective Church Podcast. Collective is a church for the rest of us, which means if you have never been to church, walked away from the church, or are struggling to find a church to connect with, you belong here. If you aren't following us on social media, make sure to head to Facebook and Instagram and search for My Collective Church to learn more about what is going on at Collective as we start this new year. Thank you again for listening. Now let's get into Sunday's message. All right, so CT mentioned it. Last week was weird. Um, I'm not sure what happened. Uh, before first service, I got up on stage to run through my slides, and I started to feel lightheaded. I started to feel a little dizzy, a bit off. And so I went to my office. I tried all the typical things, like drinking water. My wife was like, here, eat this banana, like classic parent. Um, cold compresses, everything. And uh, the feeling didn't go away. And so that's when we called CT and asked him to pinch hit. And preaching and public speaking are never easy. Um, but doing it when you didn't write the content and you only have about 20 minutes for the drive from your home to the church to do it is a whole other thing. And so CT came in last week and he crushed it. And I don't know if you know this, but CT and I have been friends since college. During my freshman year, CT, myself, and two other guys started meeting up at Applebee's on Tuesday nights for half-priced apps and to talk about life. Now, don't judge us, okay? Applebee's bonus wings slap, you know that, they're incredible. Uh, plus, we went to school in the middle of nowhere in Johnson City, Tennessee, and Applebee's was the only thing open past eight o'clock at night. And so throughout the years of us hanging out, one thing that I would constantly bring up is church planting. And I would say to the guys, wouldn't it be cool if we all planted a church together someday? Well, about a year before Collective launch, Ray and I got the green light from our sending organization to start this church. We met up with CT and his wife, Rachel, and said, hey, Remember that time in college when I used to talk about coming with us to plant a church? Let's do it. And they said yes. And so they left Bowling Green, Ohio, which wasn't really hard because it's Bowling Green, Ohio. Uh, but CT was getting his PhD there, and they moved to Frederick to join us in starting Collective. And so ultimately, they changed their whole life to help launch this church. And people ask me all the time, is CT on staff? And the answer is no. CT is a volunteer. He finished his PhD, he's now a communications professor. But one of the reasons I knew I needed CT to be a part of Collective was just in case I couldn't preach, I knew he could do it. And while we didn't plan on happening the way that it did on Sunday, I'm so thankful that he is a part of this church. And I know you are too. And so CT will be out in the lobby after service. At first service, he knew I was saying this. He was like shaking his head, please don't do this. But I'm doing it during both services anyways. Appreciate him, please. Make sure when you see him today, high five, hug, let him know how great he is, because uh, him stepping up in the pinch last week was really huge, and, uh, and I, I just think he deserves to be appreciated for that. So, all right, we're not going to brag about CT anymore. He gets enough of that. I have one quick announcement before we get started today, um, and I know a lot of you have been asking about small groups, and CT alluded to it in the host spot, and so here's what you need to know. Collectives will kick off the week of February 14th. And this is later than usual. Usually we're starting them around now. Um, but we did that because we wanted to give COVID a little bit extra time to chill out. Um, but the other reason is because we're changing things up a little bit this year. Groups will still meet weekly to reread the Bible verses that we talk about here and to discuss what that means for our life. But groups will now be something that you sign up for every semester instead of joining a group and being in that group until it no longer exists or you no longer exist. And so here's what we're going to do. 
This week, we are clearing everyone out of every group in Planning Center, which is the, the app that we have that controls all this. And so then next Sunday, you will get the chance to start signing up for the group that you want to be a part of for the spring. And you can absolutely sign up for the same group you're in for the fall. We're not worried about that. But you can also pick a new group that better fits your life or the schedule that you have. And so if you want to be in a group this spring, starting next week, you'll be able to sign up. You'll have a few weeks to do that. Uh, and we think you should do it because our collectives truly are a great way to be in community and to grow in your faith. And so I hope you take that step. All right, so like I mentioned earlier, CT and I went to college in Johnson City, Tennessee. And we went to a small Christian liberal arts college called Milligan. And when I applied to this school, I didn't know much about it. I knew it was in Tennessee, and I knew it was a Christian college, but that was essentially it. And so imagine my surprise when I enrolled and I found out that I had to go to chapel in order to graduate. You heard that, right? In order to graduate from Milligan, I had to attend 120 chapel services over four years. And it didn't matter if you were a straight A student that completed all your coursework. If you went to 119 services, you didn't get your diploma. Don't believe me? My wife graduated from Milligan a semester early, but only had 119 chapel credits. So she got to walk at graduation, and then she had to come back for one more chapel to get her diploma. And so one of the first Tuesdays I was there of my freshman year, I walked into chapel, uh, and I tried to work my way to the back of the room because I'm a back row sitter, but I was quickly stopped by my roommate who pulled me into one of the pews in the front. And I was immediately uncomfortable. I didn't grow up in church. In fact, the church I started going to when I was a teenager still met in a high school. And so this was probably the first time I'd ever sat in a pew. Also, I wasn't from Tennessee or the South like most of the students. And they were all in my face like, hello, and how's it going? And it's nice to meet you and smiling. Like, I get it. You're from the South. You're nice. Being from this area, this wasn't my favorite thing. And while I loved Jesus and felt like for whatever reason God was pushing me to be a pastor, my faith and Jesus' knowledge were super limited. And so I very much felt out of place. And then worship started. Everybody stood up and they began to sing this song called You Are Holy. And this is a song I had never heard before, but it was clear that everyone else there had heard this song. In fact, if you've been in church long enough, you probably know this song as well. But it has this super weird call and response thing where the men sing one part, you are holy, and then the women echo it, you are holy, you are mighty. You know, is this ringing any bells for some of you guys? Okay, uh, don't tell people that. Um, and I started, I'm looking around, I'm thinking, what the heck is going on? Right, how does everybody know what part to sing? Also, why do Christians do things like call and response songs? <laughs> and then the song hit the bridge. And it says, you're Emmanuel, you're the great I am, you're the Prince of Peace, who is the Lamb? And I'm thinking, who? 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 Who is these things? You're the living God, you're my saving grace, you'll reign forever, you're ancient of days. Is this about God? You're Alpha, Omega, beginning and end, you're my Savior, Messiah, Redeemer, and friend. And that's when I figured it out. It took until the end of the bridge before I felt confident that we were actually singing about God because I had never heard the phrase Prince of Peace before. I'd never heard Alpha and Omega before. I had no idea that Ancient of Days was actually a reference to God from the book of Daniel. Honestly, I didn't fully understand that God had different names in the Bible. 
So today we're kicking off this new series called What's in a Name? And if that sounds familiar, it's because it's from Shakespeare. Specifically, it's from uh, Romeo and Juliet. It's the moment where Claire Danes bemoans that Leo's last name is Montague because she's a Capulet and their family are sworn enemies. And she says, what's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. And what she's saying is it isn't really the name that matters, but the qualities of that person. But what's cool about God is that throughout the Bible, he is called different names based on his qualities and characteristics. He's still the same God, but these names represent his many attributes. Think about it like this. So my name is Michael, uh, and the name Michael means who is like God or a gift from God. I learned this while doing research for the sermon, so I keep reminding Ray, my wife, that I'm a gift from God. She's still not sure about that. But to my mom, I'm Michael, but when she calls me by that name, she's talking about her son, Michael. To Elise and Harper, I'm dad. Uh, in fact, they're just at the age where they're figuring out that I have a real name. Ray calls me Michael or Babe. My friends growing up called me Bartlett. My friends in Ohio called me MB. Some of you call me Pastor. And each are names for me, but they have different meanings, meanings that are special to the person or people who use them. And the same is true when it comes to God. So over the next few weeks, we're going to dig into some of the best names of God, and we're going to learn where these names came from and what they can mean to us today. In the Bible, God is called by almost 1,000 different names, and this includes names that are given to Jesus because Jesus is God in the flesh, and some of these names you're probably familiar with. Coming out of the Christmas season, the name of God that you hear the most is Emmanuel, which means God with us. If you listen to Christian radio right now, there's this really popular song out called Jehovah Jireh, which means God provides. On a typical Sunday at Collective, you'll hear me talk about Jesus as our Savior or Messiah, which means the one who was sent to rescue us or the one who was sent to save us. And each of these are about God, but they describe who God is. And today we're going to start with the most prominent name for God in the Bible. It's the Hebrew word Yahweh. The first time we come across Yahweh is in the second book of the Bible called Exodus. And the Israelites had been in slavery. They'd been in bondage for, in Egypt for four centuries. And near the end of this time, Moses had fled Egypt. He lived in a place called Midian when God came to him and spoke to him through a burning bush. And God tells him that he is the chosen one to lead the Israelites out of slavery. And understandably, Moses has some concerns. The main one being, how will he convince his fellow Israelites that this really is a mission from and blessed by God. And so Moses does what we would do in this scenario, is that he begins to argue with God. And just so you know, Moses actually wrote the first five books of the Bible. So he wrote this book of the Bible, and he's writing about his own firsthand interaction with God. And this is what it says. It starts in Exodus 3, verse 13. But Moses protested, If I go to the people of Israel and tell them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, they'll ask me, what is his name? Then what should I tell them? Okay, so what's happening here is that Moses, when he says the phrase, God of your ancestors, he actually uses the Hebrew word Elohim for God. And when that word Elohim was found in the Old Testament of the Bible, it implied the God of the Old Testament. But this was also the generic Hebrew word for God or gods. And so Moses understands that he can't just go to them and say, hey, Elohim said this, 
because some people could assume that he was talking about any God that people believed in in the polytheistic culture of Egypt. And so he asked, what name do I give the Israelites? Because knowing the name of God would be for Moses both a comfort and a credential in dealing with God's people. So God replied to Moses, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now, at face value, this feels kind of like a mind game, right? Like this feels like a parental move, like I am who I am. But check this out. The statement I am comes from the Hebrew word eh, yeah, which literally translates to I will be, meaning God is the one who is and will be. And so what God is doing here is he's declaring himself as self-existent. He's saying that he's eternal, self-sufficient, self-directed, unchanging, that the God that Moses is speaking to is not just God, but the God. But most importantly, the statement declared that God is present. And this is really important because this is an interaction where God actually gives this name to himself, right? God says to Moses, tell them that I am is here, that I am is with them, that I am is their God. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. And so this is the first time we see the name Yahweh in scripture. God clarifies to Moses that the God of their ancestors isn't some generic God, but Yahweh. And Yahweh means he will be. It's essentially the third person version of eh, yeah. And God actually created this name with the Hebrew consonants, Yadhevaheh, or Y-H-W-H, Yahweh. This is often called the Tetragrammaton. So God tells Moses, go tell the Israelites that Yahweh, he will be, has sent you. And then God says, this is my eternal name, my name to remember for all generations. And this moment signifies a change in how the Israelite people saw God. Because up until now, God had largely been seen as a distant God, right? As the God of their ancestors, right? Of a previous generation, of a God who was far away and not a God that they were connected to, but their family was connected to. But in this moment, God told Moses that he was their God, that he was a personal God, that he was a loving God, that he was a relational God now and forever. Yahweh goes on to be used 6,828 times in the Old Testament. 700 of those times are in the book of Psalms. It appears in every book of the Old Testament except for Esther, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Songs. And that doesn't mean God isn't mentioned. It just means the author used a different name to describe God. And in English Bibles, Yahweh is translated as Lord. And so whenever you see the word Lord in the Old Testament, it's referring to Yahweh. But there's also a catch. In the Old Testament, they also use the word Adonai for Lord. And so to distinguish between the two of them, Yahweh is written in all capitals, right? And so if you read and you see Lord in all capital letters, it's referring to Yahweh, right? This close and personal God. It's also seen in the shortened form as Yah, which appears over 50 times in the Old Testament and is often in the admonition, Hallelujah, which literally means praise, the Lord. And so Yahweh is this sacred and personal name for God. Eventually, this name was held in such high reverence that it wasn't spoken aloud by anyone except for priests who were worshiping in the temple. Then after the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, the name was not pronounced 
anymore. And so today in Jewish tradition, Yahweh is too sacred of a name to be uttered out loud. And Yahweh is only used in the Bible when the author is talking about God's personal relationship with his people. And a great example of this is seen in Psalm 19. And the author talks in the first six verses about God, or Elohim, the God of the ancestors, and his relationship to the material world. And this is, this is what it says. It says, The heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. Day after day, they continue to speak. Night after night, they make him known. They speak without a sound or word. Their voice is never heard. Yet their message has gone throughout the earth and their words to all the world. God has made a home in the heavens for the sun. It bursts forth like a radiant bridegroom after his wedding. It rejoices like a great athlete eager to run the race. The sun rises at one end of the heavens and follows its course to the other, and nothing can hide from its heat. And so what's happening is a psalmist is writing about God, but about God's relationship to the world, like how he created things and how the sun interacts with him. But then in verse 7, the author of Psalms shifts to start to write about Yahweh and his relationship with those who know him, with people who have a close relationship with him. This is what he writes. The instructions of the Lord are perfect, reviving the soul. The decrees of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The commandments of the Lord are right, bringing joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are clear, giving insight for living. Reverence for the Lord is pure, lasting forever. The laws of the Lord are true. Each one is fair. They are more desirable than gold, even the finest gold. They are sweeter than honey, even honey dripping from the comb. They are a warning to your servant, a great reward to those who obey them. And so the psalmist is talking about the same God, but he's talking about two different attributes of God, God's relationship with the world and Yahweh's relationship with his people, because God approaches those two things differently. So it's not a generic, I believe in God. It's a personal, this is my God. This is what my God is doing. This is what my God has done. And that's why it's so amazing. This is the name that God gave himself. Yahweh is a name of God that is used to describe how close he is to us. And here's why this matters. In fact, here's why this whole series matters. This is our God. This is the God we follow. We have a relational God. And I know that there's two big reasons why people struggle with this idea that God is relational. The first is that some people struggle with the truth that the God that's talked about in the Old Testament is the same God that's talked about in the New Testament. I can't even begin to tell you how many times I've heard people say, I don't like the God of the Old Testament. I only like the God of the New Testament because people see God in the Old Testament as a God of wrath and a God of the New Testament as love. But it's the same God. Malachi 3.6 says, I am the Lord, notice the capitals, I do not change. He's saying, I am Yahweh, and I do not change. Hebrews 13.8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. James 1.17 says, whatever is good and perfect is a gift coming down to us from God our Father, who created all the lights in the heavens. He never changes or casts a shifting shadow. Another translation says that he never changes as a shifting shadow does. God isn't there one moment and then gone the next. God doesn't change. The same relational God in the Old Testament is the same relational God in the New Testament. The difference is that in the New Testament, that relational God sent Jesus to be God in the flesh so that people could interact and see that relational God. But that's the same God we have now. 
And even though Jesus isn't with us now, that relational God left us with the Holy Spirit, which is God in us. So the same God who is with Moses is the same God who's with us. The same God who spoke to Moses in the burning bush is trying to speak to us today. The same God whose power split the Red Sea so the Israelites could walk to safety is the same power God wants to unleash in our own life. The same God who rescued the Israelites out of oppression is trying to free us from our sin. The same God who conquered the enemies of the Israelites wants to conquer the pain and addictions and problems that we are facing right now. And that same God wants to have a personal relationship with you. And this leads to the second thing that people struggle with when they hear that God is a relational God. The second reason people struggle with this is because they don't understand why God would want to have a personal relationship with them. Right? Why would the God of the universe want to be so close to people like us? Right? To lost and broken and messy people. Why would God want to have a relationship with me? Because the truth is, I'm not worthy of God's love, this perfect love, because I'm selfish right? Like we are selfish. We choose our own way over God's all the time. We choose our own way when it comes to how we treat people. We choose our own way when it comes to sex and sexuality. We choose our own way when it comes to money. We choose our own way when it comes to forgiveness, all of it. So why would God want to have a relationship with me? And the truth is, it's because he loves us. It's because he loves you. 1 John 4.16 says, we know how much God loves us and we've put our trust in his love because God is love. John 3.16, most popular verse in the Bible, it says this, for this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. God is a relational God who loves us and does everything he can to have a relationship with his people. This includes giving up his own son to pay a debt that our own sin creates because we can't pay for it ourselves, right? We don't have a God that's too far away. We don't have a God who we can't see or feel or watch interact in our lives, right? God isn't some puppet master and we're these puppets on strings. God was a relational God. God is a relational God. God will always be a relational God. And so it's not about whether or not God wants to have a relationship with you. It's whether or not you want to have a relationship with him. Like the reality is the ball is always in our court because God is always there. And if you are a Christian, if you've chosen to have a relationship with God, it's about what you are doing to maintain that relationship. God's always there. The question is, are we reaching out to him? Are we praying to him? Are we listening to him? Are we worshiping him? Are we in our Bible daily so we can see what he can do? Are we taking risks in our faith, knowing and trusting that he's with us? God is always there and always choosing a relationship with us. The question is, are we choosing the same thing? Continuing the trend of the past two weeks, we're celebrating more baptisms today. And baptism literally means to be immersed in water, to be dunked. And baptism symbolizes the death and burial of our old selves and the resurrection, the raising up of our new selves into Christ. And so just like Jesus died and resurrected from the dead, we die and we're raised up as a new creation. And so at first service, we got to celebrate TJ. At second service, we're celebrating Annie. And what they're saying is that they understand God's desire to have a relationship with them. And they are choosing to have a relationship back and they're publicly declaring that through baptism. 
And the reason we talk about baptism almost every single week at Click, the reason it's on the digital connection card is because we want people to know that God's number one desire is to be in a relationship with them. It's right. It's why he chose the name Yahweh for himself. His desire is for us to experience his love and his grace and his forgiveness. And when someone chooses that relationship, they get baptized. And so the challenge is the same. If you've never made that decision, but you're choosing to have that relationship with God, we want to walk with you through that. And so what we encourage you to do is check the baptism box on your connection card, and Danielle will call you this week to talk about what does it look like to choose that relationship with God that he's so freely giving. When I was doing my church planting residency before starting Collective, I would spend one Monday a month rotating with three other pastors, three friends of mine, in order to teach the Bible to women who are living at the Samaritan Women in Baltimore. And TSW is a national Christian organization that provides restorative care for survivors of sex trafficking. One afternoon, we were ending our discussion when the youngest girl in the program, she was 17 years old, told me that she was getting baptized that weekend. And I remember going to church on Sunday, and as she got into the tub, they played a video of her story. And this is some of what she shared. She said, I ran away from home when I was 13, and I burned every bridge in my life. I made decisions that most people would be ashamed to even think about just so I could survive. I've been abused and taken advantage of, treated like I had no worth. I have lied and cheated. I have told God I hated him, told people that God wasn't real, I was told that I was so unlovable that I did everything I could to prove that that was true, but God never stopped loving me. And anyone who can love me is someone I never want to let go of. And so listen, I, I don't know where you stand with God. I don't know what your relationship with God feels like right now. But no matter how far away he feels, no matter how broken you feel, no matter how lost you feel, how unlovable you feel, God is close. And the fact that God introduces himself to us as Yahweh tells us that his first priority in relating to us is to make sure that we fully understand that God is an intensely personal God seeking to have a relationship with his people, a relationship with us, a relationship with you. That's what God wants, and that's who God is. He is Yahweh. Let's pray. God, um, we don't grasp this idea that you want to be close to us. God, because the truth is we don't know why anybody would want to be close to us, let alone the God of the universe. But God, we read this story and we hear your name and it reminds us that your number one desire is to have a relationship with your people. God, no matter how messed up or how broken or how sinful we are, God, you choose to be close to us. And so, God, I pray this week as we wrestle with this, no matter where we are in our faith, when we wrestle with the idea, God, that you want to be in a relationship with us, God, I pray this week we lean into that. God, that we don't approach you and see you as a God who's far away or a God for our parents or a God from the Old Testament, but a God who is Yahweh, a God who loves us. God who desires to know us and to care about us. And God, I pray that we accept that. God, that we choose that love, that we choose that care, that we choose that relationship. 
And God, I pray for everybody here who feels like you're distant or far away. God, who feels like they haven't seen you in their life in a while, or maybe they feel like they haven't seen you at all, that they understand that you are always there. God, that you are always right next to us, walking alongside of us. And it's up to us whether or not we see that. God, we thank you for the ways that you love us. God, we thank you for the ways that you care for us. We don't deserve it, but we appreciate it. God, we love you and pray these things in your name. Amen.